This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, if it doesn't matter who comes first, it matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, um, a, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Evangelos Samudis, the co-founder and managing director of Synapse Partners, a firm that invests in early stage companies developing applications that combine artificial intelligence with big data. Previously, he served as a managing director with Trident Capital and Apex Partners. He's an investor, uh, previously was an entrepreneur, and he's also an author. He recently published a book, The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. Evangelos, welcome to the show. Very great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you've written a very interesting new book called The Big Data Opportunity in Our Driverless Future. I'll put a link to it in our show notes so folks can read it. Um, you have a lot of interesting thoughts about business models for autonomous vehicles and how you think they'll be used and adopted. So I thought we could start by digging in on, on some of that. You mentioned in your book three shifts that you see coming, I think, for consumers, for the auto industry, and for mobility services like rideshare. Uh, maybe starting with consumers, can you tell us what you think transportation will look like five years from now and then maybe 15 years from now for sort of uh, urban and suburban uh, users? Um, so when I, when I was thinking about the title of the book, uh, I wanted to, to make sure that I, um, I look at transportation more expansively uh, rather than just the technology of autonomous vehicles. So I purposely called it driverless future because for me, as part of that future, we have the contributions of autonomous vehicles, but we also have the contributions transportation that are coming with on-demand mobility. And demand mobility is being offered by a variety of mobility services, whether it is uh, ride hailing, as you mentioned, or uh, bike sharing and, and other types of uh, services uh, like that. But as part of this driverless future, uh, I, I see that, um, first of all, the consumer side, that we are, uh, we are starting to move from a, a car ownership centric model, right, where, where the car, especially in, in Western societies, in developing economies and developed economies, the, the car d defines who we are, our economic status and the like, and, and moving to, to initially at least a hybrid model that combines car ownership with, with on-demand uh, car access. And um, that, that on-demand car access could be offered by, uh, it's, it's already being offered by um, uh, services such as ride hailing, and I think we'll continue to see that. Um, but uh, uh, increasingly, particularly in mega cities, as, as more uh, 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 autonomous vehicles uh, become available, 
that access uh, offered be, um, by uh, autonomous, uh, autonomous vehicles. So if you were to look at the next five years, uh, I actually see a, a, continuous, a continued rather, uh, growth of on-demand mobility, but uh, that growth coming from the, the use of uh, the conventional uh, transportation, again, whether it is uh, the, the type of cars that we have today, uh, vans, uh, uh, and, and bicycles, and, and other means. Um, uh, if you're looking at, at a 15-year horizon, uh, I think within 15 years we will we will start seeing uh, the, the the introduction of more uh, autonomous vehicles. And again, when I talk about autonomous, for me, is really level four, level five autonomy as opposed to level two, level three that uh, to a certain extent we have today. Um, but I see the, the introduction of these level four, level five autonomous vehicles, uh, particularly in in mega cities and in as a well initially well controlled environments. But but I think the, this shift to uh, to the, the this consumer shift um, is not predicated on uh, the existence of autonomous vehicles. Uh, but I think will be uh, greatly facilitated and uh, by, by the, the existence of such vehicles. Right. So the I think what you're saying is the trend from car ownership toward car access is already happening even before autonomous vehicles are available. And you expect that would accelerate with autonomy. Uh, is that because the price will come down and it will become uh, more ubiquitous? Uh, correct. Uh, I, I think that I mean, one of the reasons that I have stated that uh, fleets are going to be the, the initial uh, broader users of uh, autonomous vehicles is because in fleets, whether it is fleets of passenger vehicles um, or fleets of, of trucks, the, the use of level four and level five autonomy has a great impact on the economics and as a result of the business model that such companies use. So uh, in the book, I talk about uh, the fact that today on the average on, for ride hailing, the, the cost per mile is around $1.6, you know, $1.5, $1.6 with uh, level four, level five autonomy, particularly level five, uh, the, the potential is for this to come down to um, somewhere between 30 and 40 cents per mile. Uh, so, so that uh, could, could give a, a great incentive uh, for these companies to uh, adopt these technologies. And that's why we are, we're seeing uh, companies like Uber and uh, Lyft and, and Nike, the you know, leaders in this space, being so aggressive in uh, looking at this, uh, in this technology and trying to determine how uh, how to deploy it. As you, as you talk about this mix of, of car ownership and, and moving toward uh, car access and more of a rideshare model, what, what do you see that mix looking like in a typical family? Are, are you thinking that people will still own a car but then supplement that with uh, use of rideshare, or you think perhaps a two-family, a two-car family might might only have one car. 
how, how do you see the the mix playing out in the, in the hybrid model that I think you've you've talked about of people using a little bit of each? Yeah. So. Um, just to stay with your, let's call it 10 to 15 year horizon, I certainly do not see car ownership going away. Uh, but what I do see, as you correctly point out, is a shift in, in car uh, ownership. And, and this shift will come uh, particularly in, in, the, in the multi-car ownership uh, uh, household. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the, the, the two-car uh, household may become a one-car uh, household um, and uh, there, there might be also less incentive to update or upgrade or to change that car, uh, you know, over, over time, uh, you know, so whereas the replacement cycles may have been uh, three, four years. Uh, uh, in, in some cases, that may get uh, longer because the car may be used uh, differently. Uh, the, the since it is used differently, the, uh, the the user may not have as much need to uh, to to get access to the latest and greatest technology that may come uh, that comes rather with every uh, car upgrade uh, cycle. So so there are implications like this. Uh, but again, as I said, uh, I think the, the biggest change will be that there will be a less incentive to, to have two or more than two cars per, per household. Now, I will also say, just to be, to be clear, and I, again, I say this in the book, that um, I, uh, this type of model uh, will, not, uh, uh, will not be exhibited universally, will not be adopted rather universally. Um, I, I keep talking about mega cities and, and very dense urban environments uh, where we see some of these uh, challenges that, that um, whether it is congestion, pollution, uh, uh, you know, t- t- time to travel uh, that, uh, that, give, that, have, that have made the, the use of uh, mobility services more prominent. Uh, on the other hand, in, in less dense suburbs in rural areas, I do not uh, see this type of changes taking hold anytime soon. I, I think we will, uh, you know, households there will keep relying on, on uh, owned uh, cars and um, many of them. And so, uh, you know, the, the trend toward rideshare being more of an urban uh, phenomena, you mentioned that you know, rideshare and fleet use is the first place where you think we're going to see autonomous vehicles introduced, not only because of the the economics, but presumably because it's a more limited uh, use case, that it's an easier uh, circumstance to control when autonomous vehicles are introduced using a rideshare or other fleet service. Uh, do you think that people will eventually own cars that are autonomous? Um, I do not have a, uh, I do not have a clear answer. I can look at certain analogs. I mean, there are uh, people in every aspect of technology that want to have access to the latest and greatest. Uh, so there the will be uh, those that, that will want to have um, uh, the, the autonomous vehicle because they, they want access to that technology. 
And then there will be others that may have, uh, that may want access to that technology because of their driving or commuting or transportation patterns. I mean, you, you look today, people using, let's say, something like autopilot on the freeway uh, because of, you know, they commute long distances there. It's freeway driving and that type, even that type of autonomy um, facilitates their, uh, their use case. Uh, similarly, again, I don't want to only talk about the consumer side. If you look at the commercial side, long-haul tracking, um, they, they, they can they're provide some great uh, use use cases for for autonomous uh, for autonomous technology. But again, I I, I see the uh, uh, you know car ownership of autonomous vehicles being um, uh, being uh, probable. I don't see it as a as a broad use case. I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but that that's how I'm thinking about it today. Yeah. So when you think about a rural user 15 years from now, you're thinking in those use cases it will still be car ownership rather than ride share, and that there may be uh, less of an impetus to adopt an autonomous vehicle uh, outside of the urban areas. Well, I'm saying that, uh, again, the, the, the user will have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Remember, autonomous vehicles, in order to be used properly, they require the right infrastructure. So it's not only the capability that the vehicle has, but also the you know what, what is available in, in, around them. The autonomous vehicles require high-definition maps. High definition maps are very expensive to create and even more expensive to update and keep updated. Uh, there might be less incentive uh, to, to keep such map, to, to create and keep such maps updated in a rural area where you, you may have less, uh, less of a use, right? Less population using it. Uh, you, you need instrumented transportation infrastructure. Again, uh, you, I could I could see a great need for instrumenting our um, uh, freeway system, our high, national highway system. I can see less of a need uh, to to instrument a, a rural route. Uh, again, such instrumentation is not inexpensive. Um, uh, on the other hand, again, if you look at uh, of autonomous other types of autonomous vehicles, you know, in, in rural areas, you could have specialized vehicles, uh, tractors, for example, farming tractors, um, getting increasing levels of autonomy. I mean, you already have autonomy in such vehicles, uh, and but but I could see many reasons to to keep building on on that capability uh, to to deal with more complex cases, to deal with, you know farming to to deal with the, the fact that you do not have a lot of people who, who are able and willing to work in this kind of job. So, so again, uh, it's, uh, there are several types of cases that will drive uh, the, uh, the, the use and application of autonomous vehicles in different environments. Right. It, there's been a number of articles written to the effect that consumers don't really want autonomous vehicles, that there's not a, a demand for autonomous features or, or fully autonomous vehicles. 
but it seems like the rate of adoption for rideshare in urban areas was was pretty fast, and people adapted to it rather easily. Um, how, how do you feel about consumer movement toward autonomy, and you know, does the fact that people are used to rideshare kind of get you halfway there? Well, I think a lot of it is um, uh, generational, um, and uh, and also um, uh, you know cultural. Um, there the, the, the could be uh, you know in a in a generation that where car ownership was such a such a principal component of of uh, life, there might be less. Uh, incentive or less desire, rather, to uh, to move to fully autonomous uh, vehicles uh, in a in a, in a different demographic, different culture. Uh, it, it could be uh, something that is much easier adopt, uh, that, that something that can be adopted much easier. I think we will have to start taking that as we go along, as as we start testing outside of the lab. Again, today the the state of the art is lab testing, whether we do it in a constrained environment or whether we do it out on a, on a, on a street, um, it, it's, it's still very much under lab conditions. Um, the, uh, but, but I also, um, I will also say that as we are, uh, uh, as we are getting into, into this, into these vehicles, the, I feel that the, the quality of the transportation experience is what will determine the uh, the rate of adoption and the the, the type of adoption. Uh, and this is why I keep focusing on the the big data side because to me uh, the, it, it is the data and the exploitation of that data using AI and machine intelligence that will enable. The, the, the companies that provide these vehicles or that provide the services around these vehicles to, uh, to offer the experiences that attract or distance consumers or other users from, from such vehicles. Right. And how do you see public transit fitting into this picture, if you were in charge of public transit in a city like San Francisco and you're looking out 5 to 15 years, how would you be thinking about public transit fitting into this picture? Yeah, I, uh, um, I actually think it is time, I mean, given the type of population moves that we are seeing to urban settings, and given what we are seeing in terms of the development uh, of mega cities, either from the ground up for new cities that are being designed as mega cities or cities that, that have become or are becoming mega cities, I think it is important to start thinking of multimodal transportation as opposed to, to public transportation that is offered in very siloed manner. What I mean by that is that we have a subway system that, um, but we, and we have a bus system, and the two may not be coordinated at all. 
Uh, I think that, again, going back to this notion of transportation experiences, terrestrial transportation experiences, we need to start thinking of what it will take for me to go from point A to point B in order to accomplish a particular goal uh, by using the most efficient, the most um, uh, comfortable, the, 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 the most, uh, uh, you know, the, the best way to, uh, the, the best means of transportation to get there. And that may involve combining, uh, a, a, you know, a train service with a, with a ride hailing uh, service, with a bike sharing service. Uh, and because I have the age to do it, I live in a city that I can do it, you know, and all of that. Um, to, to date, um, uh, you know, consumers that are very interested in that uh, take matters in their own hands and they're able to cobble together such solutions and, and meet their needs in this way. I, I think it is important, though, for, uh, for the world, you know, it's the, city, the city level, the state level, the country level, to start thinking of, uh, of offering that position and providing that type of coordination uh, by, again, taking into account um, uh, data and capability. Let, let's talk a little bit uh, about big data since you've, uh, you've mentioned it. Um, in your example of the city trying to coordinate uh, maybe using rideshare for first mile or last mile or within the city or supplementing uh, public transit and, and working uh, together with the various uh, transit services. Um, what kinds of data uh, will we see and how would that be used and how would it need to be shared between the government and these other private uh, companies or other regional transit services in order to facilitate the kind of uh, multimodal transportation that, that you're thinking about? Yeah. So, um, first of all, uh, I think it is important for everybody to, to understand that as we're moving to, to these um, autonomous vehicles, these next generation vehicles, um, these, are, these vehicles are data hubs. They, um, they, there's a lot of data that they produce from the uh, hundreds or sometimes thousands of sensors that they have on board. Um, they have you know, data from, from the engine, from other, from other systems. There is data that is being produced uh, within the, the cabin, you know, where the, the passengers um, are. Um, and then there is, on top of that, there is data that is produced by other vehicles in the, in the course of operating in this kind of an environment, as well as the, the transportation infrastructure. So, so there is a, there is a very, there are, these are very rich data lakes that, that are uh, created. Now, on top of that, you, you can layer um, the, the data that is provided by a variety of services, you know, weather data, um, uh, traffic data, mapping data, uh, infotainment data. Uh, for example, you, you saw uh, a couple of few weeks ago, uh, Sirius XM acquired a, a automotive uh, data analytics company called Automatic, 
Um, again, Sirius XM being a, a, an infotainment, a vehicle infotainment uh, company, uh, they, they want to, to be able to, to start analyzing some of the data that their subscribers uh, produce in the course of using the vehicle, right? So, so that, that's kind of like a second layer. And then on the third layer is the, the overall consumer transportation data. So, uh, and we're already starting to see my firm um, consider investments in um, uh, companies that are able to, to capture transportation mode. Um, so, you know, the, the, you're now through the sensors that we have on us, whether it is in our smartphones or the wearable devices that we have, um, we can determine we can determine whether somebody is taking, uh, you know, is walking or, or is running or is, is in a car or on a, on a bus. So, so we can, you know, that's another layer of data. And then the final layer, if you will, uh, just to your question, it would be the transportation schedules for the, the train, for the subway, for the buses, you know, and all of that. So the, all of that data is accessible, okay? Uh, the, the question is whether it can be integrated uh, what what should be the protections that we need to put in place as we integrate it, and um, how we will be able, what will be the, the, the financial incentive for the owners of that data to, to participate in this data econ- transportation data economy. Uh, and so, so these are some of the um, uh, these are some of the, the issues that I believe we will need to, to grapple with over the next uh, few years, as we uh, uh, as we become more and more aware that um, a, a lot of the you know in, in this new value chain that is emerging, transportation value chain that is emerging, uh, the, the data aspect and the insights that can be derived from that data may be one of the few and best high margin monetization opportunities that we have. Yeah, it seems like consumers and society as a whole would benefit from the type of coordination and, in essence, sharing of this data. And the question is, will the private companies find it in their interests also to participate in sharing this data in order to make this coordination happen? Yeah, you know... um, the, the best example, and in, in fact, this the example I'm about to mention has has been driving some of my thinking in this area. So, um, over the past few years, I had uh, invested quite aggressively on, around companies that provide online advertising solutions. And again, these were companies that were using data analytics, machine learning type of technologies in order to make online advertising more effective. And the reason that these solutions became, uh, is the companies that I invested became um, very successful is because the public saw that they, they would get certain value from accessing internet-based services and they wanted these services for free and they were willing to, to tolerate and they uh, advertising and they wanted to, but, but, but they did not want 
just random advertising. They, they, they wanted to see some value even from that advertising. So um, I, with that type of an analogy, I believe that um, as, we, as we become, as companies become aware of what is this new value chain going to look like and what would be the economics of this uh, transportation uh, shift that, uh, that we, are, we will undergo because of the introduction of these technologies and these services, uh, they will need to, to determine how to, mon- how to best monetize and they, they will find that the, the use of data for a variety of models, subscription models, advertised models, will, will give them the, the, the best monetization path forward. And I believe that's what's going to convince them to, to change their, their current approach, which has been to, to, to keep this data, whatever data they capture today, which is quite, quite limited, to be siloed and, and start opening up and creating what I keep calling a data sharing culture uh, to, to, that, that will utilize and uh, that will fully utilize the, the data that, is, uh, that can be available. Right. How much data are we talking about? Well, uh, you know, there, there are, um, uh, again, on, on a vehicle basis, um, it, you, it, it, the things vary, but it can be somewhere from a gigabyte per uh, minute of operation to, you know, uh, several, uh, uh, several gigabytes per minute of operation. Um, you know, Intel has come out publicly and, and talked about uh, four terabytes per car per day uh, or per vehicle per day. I think a, a lot of it depends on how, how uh, the, the reason I prefer the uh, volume per, uh, per, uh, per time unit as a, as a better way of describing it is because it depends really how long you use your vehicle on a, on a, or that vehicle is being used on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, today we use our personal vehicles 5-10% of the day, you know, on a, on a personal basis. On the other hand, a, a ride-hailing vehicle maybe use 50% of, of the day, so, you know, 12 hours a day, right, as opposed to, you know, two hours a day. Uh, so, so, um, so again, but we're talking about significant volumes of data. Not, not, not all of this data is, is useful. A lot of the data has a very short half-life, um, but a lot of data is being generated. Well, let's... Uh shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, what you think these changes in transportation are going to do to the uh, auto industry and to mobility service providers like Rideshare. Uh, What are the shifts that you see coming and how will these players be impacted? Yeah, so... Uh, the, the second shift that I see, you know, so the first shift we talked about consumer, the second shift that I see is happening or needing to happen to the auto industry. And, and the shift there is that the, the OEMs need to move from designing and manufacturing vehicles to, to providing uh, integrated and, and personalized transportation solutions to their, to their audience. Now, um, in, in different forums, like I've said, that they, they need, you know, OEMs need to get from the, uh, 
from the manufacturing business to the insight generation business, right? Uh, uh, but again, more broadly for me, you know, whether you do it through inside generation, whatever, the, the point is that they need to be providing solutions as opposed to just manufacturing cars. Um, so so that, that's important. Uh, and I think that would be probably the hardest, uh, the hardest shift because these are, um, you know, companies that have been around for a long time. I mean, the automotive industry has been around 100 years. You know, many of the, the companies that are the big names in that industry uh, have such, you know, history that is from the beginning of the automotive, of the automobile. Um, so they, they have a particular DNA, a particular culture, and changing that um and uh, moving to a to a driverless future, the way I described it, I, I think could be uh, particularly challenging. And is that uh, a revenue shift? Is that to say that instead of selling cars and charging per unit for a car, that it's necessarily going to be more of a mobility as a service, charging per mile, that, that kind of a revenue shift? Well, there's definitely a, a, a business model shift or at the very least a, a, the addition of a model to, to their existing model. Again, as I said, I, I don't expect anytime soon to, to have the elimination of personal car ownership. Um, but the, the question is, you know, how many cars you'll be able to sell, you know, what margins you will be able to uh, uh, to, to extract from uh, from the sale of those vehicles, so uh, there's definitely a, a business model shift, and, and uh, depending on, on how the consumer shift takes place, there could very well be a, a shrinking of the of the business. Okay, which will have a, a, a which could have a, a very big, very fundamental impact on on these uh, on these companies. But um, the uh, you know, again, we would look at worst case scenario is that if you're if you're starting to think of like this new set of vehicles, these ACE vehicles as I call them, autonomous, connected, and electrified, um, these require you know very different value chain. I mean, the supply chains, right? You have different components, you know, the different different uses. And, and that gives the opportunity for startups to, to come into the, into the business and completely append the, um, the, the existing uh, and established relations, which is something that both automakers, incumbent automakers, and their suppliers, their tier one suppliers particularly, are concerned about. Um, but you, you also have, as I said, the uh, com- completely uh, you know, as part of, you, you can you can you can foresee a future where these automakers become just manufacturers, they're you know contract manufacturers, and their margins are compressed even more. I mean that, that, that's the kind of of uh, I think concern that the industry has these days, and that's why uh, you see them aggressively investing in uh, innovation hubs like Silicon Valley and establishing innovation outposts uh, in, in Israel and in, in a few other a few other places. And so do you see uh, the OEMs then uh, really needing to engage in partnerships both with 
companies that can provide a, an autonomous technology layer as well as distribution platforms like Rideshare? Yeah, I think that uh, I think partnership is going to be a, a key word, uh, but not the only word. Um, I think the uh, the these companies need to um, embark on a multi-prong uh, strategy. Uh, it could involve uh, acquisitions. It could involve partnerships. It will involve investments. Um, and uh, it will involve a lot of it will involve a lot of experimentation, and the um, one of the points that I've been making more recently is that while I see them making such steps, I I don't see them yet making them aggressively enough and to the scale that I believe will be necessary in order to. Um, defend against this disruption that we've been talking about. Right. It seems like there are also, you know, as you pointed out with respect to startups, uh, that there are full stack, uh, vertically integrated players. There's Tesla, there's Neo, there's now Zooks who are trying to uh, build the whole car from the ground up, including the autonomous technology, and also provide it perhaps as a service um, or in some other distribution uh, platform. Uh, how do you think that model will ultimately compare to uh, traditional OEM trying to structure partnerships for the technology and the, and the distribution layers? Yeah, so um, first I will say, as far as I'm concerned at least, and I'm not saying that I'm 100% right, but I think that Neo uh, is is talking about having somebody else build cars for them as opposed to them building cars, compared to, say, a Tesla, you know, as you mentioned, that that is that has taken full on the, the manufacturing challenge of, of, the, of the vehicle business. So um, I'm actually, uh, again, uh, a, a lot more bullish with companies that, that um, uh, work on the, uh, on, on the, you can call it the software layer, the, the autonomous vehicle brains uh, and, and all the other uh, uh, infrastructure that goes around it, you know, whether it is mapping, whether it is um, uh, training, whether it is simulation, whether I mean, there are a number of, of areas, whether it is uh, you know, transportation coordination and management, fleet management. I mean, there are all sorts of of, um, of opportunities that my firm has been has been investing around because of our fundamental belief of, of where the value is going to be. Um, uh, but um, I am I'm less um, I'm, I'm less uh, Comfortable and bullish on the uh, on the value of uh, of having manufacturing capability and actually building a car, learning how to build that car for for these companies. Uh, I'm not saying I'm right, but but that, that has been my uh, my belief. I think it's a it's a capital uh, inefficient uh, area, um, and as we've been as we've been talking uh, about uh, for for what we're seeing with the incumbents. Uh, an area that even if you were willing to spend the capital, 
uh, you're not uh, being financially rewarded. And so you, you see the the profit margin being in the technology layer more so than in the manufacturing. I do, I do, and and, and you know again going back to these shifts that we were talking about, um, if you are uh, if you assume a world where, uh, especially in certain environments, uh, mobile on demand mobility. Uh, becomes very prominent. Uh, it is not clear to me, you know, what would be the the importance of of having like the the, the best uh, the, the best manufacturer, the best designed uh, uh, car in terms of aesthetics or some of the other values that we are putting today uh, that we're using today when we acquire um, a vehicle. I mean, if you look at again, the airline industry may be an interesting. Um, analog here, an interesting exemplar here, because um, you look at, um, you know, you look at airplanes uh, increasingly looking very, very similar. Uh, the differentiation may be coming in the brains of the airplane, uh, may be coming maybe in, in the, the engine that they use, even though even that is becoming interchangeable uh, these days. But the, um, the, 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 the general airplane has uh, from from uh, manufacturer to manufacturer has does does not have you know tremendous changes in the way that say that we see cars today so so again if you think of a world where on-demand uh, mobility uh, is uh, uh, you know is, is, is important and it's, a, it's a primary uh, transportation means um, th- that type of mobility will not will actually thrive using fewer types of cars because they're more easily maintained, you know, all, all of the advantages. And, and that certainly uh, doesn't benefit uh, elaborate manufacturing. Right. And let's let's talk about the, the shift in, in the mobility services. I mean, today, when you look at the TNC providers, it's a platform. They don't have to own assets. The drivers are bringing the vehicles uh, to the platform, uh, what is the shift that you see there, and how do you feel that the rideshare companies will be able to make that transition? Yeah, so so to me, uh, mobility company, I mean, uh, right, particularly ride hailing uh, companies and ride sharing companies um, uh, and car sharing companies are are routers of uh, of. Of vehicles, you know, they they do not manage the vehicle, they do not own the vehicle. That has allowed them to uh, quickly enter uh, markets, uh, but uh, has given them a far less control on the user experience, um, and and b uh, you know the the economics are not uh, great now in an environment like we have today where. Uh, there is ample uh, capital uh, and uh, that is looking for for places for for areas to be placed. Um, this has not been a problem, uh, but in a, in a in a in an era where there is more more constraint on the capital, that will definitely the the, the economics will definitely be a problem, and that's where the um, you know the autonomous the, the capabilities of the autonomous vehicles can can be of help. So. So the shift that I see on the on the mobility services uh, area is that uh, in certain settings, 
it will be necessary for these transportation network companies, starting with them, to uh, become fleet operators. Uh, that uh, means that they will need to, to manage, to have full control of a fleet of, of ACE, these autonomous connected electrified vehicles, so that they can take advantage of the user experience like that they provide. It would be a much more uni much more controlled user experience, obviously, because they, they have access to the vehicle and they will have uh, they will take advantage of the economics that such vehicles provide. Now, so I'll make two two statements because it's not always clear what I'm when I say this. Um, first statement is that I don't I don't expect that TNCs will be will exclusively be or will give up their, their current uh, model in order to to uh, to become fleet operators. All I'm saying is that. Um, uh, a company like Uber, a company like Lyft, uh, in, in some settings, they may choose to have their own their own fleet. Uh, they operate their own fleet, maybe in certain cities, in certain urban settings, and whatever. Um, and in others, they 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 will continue uh, execute. They will continue using the their current their current model. And in fact, in, in some areas, they may use both, right? Uh, so you look at something like New York, New York City. Uh, in Manhattan, you may be using more autonomous vehicles, you know, where you are a fleet operator. And in the other boroughs, you may be using uh, your your current model by utilizing other people's uh, other people's uh, vehicles. So, so that's um, uh, that's point number one. Point number two, statement number two, is that. When I talk about fleet operating companies, I don't imply that these companies will need to own these autonomous vehicles. They may be leasing them, you know, very much like an airline leases the airplanes that it uses in its fleet. Um, uh, they may be these these uh, companies, these uh, uh, TNCs, could be leasing autonomous vehicles that some other corporation actually owns and holds the lease on. Yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting comparison to the airline industry. Um, I, I see the comparison when you say, well, nobody cares whether they're flying in a Boeing airplane or a competitor. They're just looking to things more like the airline, the, the experience of who's operating it. But when it comes to the financing, the fleet, the idea of sort of fleet financing, et cetera, it seems a little different than airlines because you ha with the airline industry, you have many fewer planes and they last a lot longer. And cars, I think, seem like you need a whole lot of them and they're uh, a smaller price and they last a shorter period of time. Um, but so it'll be interesting to see how that how that works and how that develops. I'm not sure who the fleet owner would be. Would they be leasing it from General Motors or, you know, well, some intermediary? I mean, I mean, again, if you, if you look today, a company like Hertz is, or you know, any of the car rental companies, they're fleet operators. Um, now, in their case, they, they, um, they take ownership of the, of the car and then they, once the car uh, runs its uh, uh, useful life. They try to sell it, you know, maybe after, you know, I think in the, in the case we've heard, maybe 20,000 miles, uh, they, they, they try to sell it. And um, so I, I could, so we're already having analogs even in the, in the automotive world. Yeah. 
but, but again, the, the point that you should think about is the, is the following, is that in a, in a in, let's say again with right hailing, you don't need to have thousands of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars in order to cover an area, right? Uh, this is not like, uh, again, this is not like car rental today where, um, again, stay with Hertz. Hertz needs to have, uh, you know, a few hundred vehicles in San Francisco airport because uh, it's typically one passenger, one driver per vehicle, right? It, it, when you're talking about um, uh, ride hailing in a in a in an urban kind of mega city environment, uh, you may be able to cover that area effectively, especially if you're managing the whole thing uh, with with you know a small number of vehicles. Uh, and since you have full control of that fleet and you can run that fleet uh, for as long as you want, again, very much like an airline, you can optimize your resources accordingly. Whereas today, a TNC, you know, if, if I'm a driver in a TNC, I may work for a couple of hours, then I, I take the rest of the day off because I, so I choose and, and, and the TNC has no control over me, right? They cannot compel me to go back and, and drive for, you know, 10 hours, like, you know, in a, in a taxi situation. Okay. So, so that's why I'm, I'm saying that um, uh, you, can, you can do that. I mean, again, take, take New York, you know, New York has 10,000 taxis, give or take. Um, to cover the entire uh, uh, the entire area, not only Manhattan, but the entire city of New York. Um, so uh, that that could be a, a good a good analog of how many cars you will actually need in order to provide that type of uh, that type of service. Right, and so for, it, with respect to the mobility service providers. Uh, it sounds like this would is mostly a positive shift, both in terms of economics and control, with the downside being just the need to become a fleet operator and that change in, in business model. That, well, yeah, and that, by the way, is not a, a, a small change uh, because, again, the, these companies um, uh, have not had to think about Issues such as financing, issues such as fleet insurance, issues such as um, you know specifying vehicles and how many vehicles. And I mean, they, so far they take pride in the fact that they have uh, you know hundreds of thousands of drivers that have signed up to to their service. Uh, there, is, there is a different set of criteria that they will need to to consider. They they will need to. I mean, if for example, if you're in a city where you offer both the the fleet model the, using autonomous vehicles and the traditional TNC model using other people's vehicles, you will need to decide um, how many of the other people's vehicles do I need in my service in order to optimize my own economics with my own fleet, right? Um, and, and so these are, again, criteria that are not insurmountable, obviously, but... Uh, but these are issues that uh, TNCs did not have to deal with to date, and they will have to uh, as we as we move in that world. More, more big data and uh, complex algorithms, I guess. I, 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 you said it. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Evangelos for joining us today, and thanks to everyone for listening. 
You can find the show notes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars at medium.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.